does it have supernatural elements? And they were like, you know, one of the dudes jumps in and it was like, no, absolutely not. There's no supernatural elements whatsoever, man. You're good to go. And then I just screenshot it. It was like an entire page of the deck, pasted it into the email. And I was like, then what is this? And it was like this picture of this like terrifying, like uh, ghoul that had filed down teeth. Dude, it was, it was just like, I'm just like, how, how, how do you explain this, this then? Today, I sit down and talk with Micah Haley. He's a producer, screenwriter, and director of development at Intercut Capital. We talk about how films get funded, play a fun game with log lines, and I ask him a lot of questions about Santa Jaws. This was one of my most favorite conversations I ever got to have the show. And even after it ended, Micah stayed on with me for another like two hours just talking. <laughs> so I really hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did making it. Uh, hello. Hi, Micah. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me, Ryan. So could you just quickly uh, give an overview about um, what exactly it is that you do and your company? Because it sounds really interesting when I was reading up on it. Yeah, so I am a writer and producer at Intercut Capital. If you go to our website, it's a little misleading right now, uh, and that's kind of on purpose. Uh, <laughs> so our website has all this language about debt and we do debt in a new way and stuff like that and it, it's to deter like cold requests for equity uh because we finance movies so you know you get uh it, you're always going to get some amount of outreach from people who are just asking you to finance their movies and so our website sort of deters that a little bit but essentially um we are uh, a company that uh, finances and produces movies. Uh, we, I would describe uh, our, the type of investment we do as, as active. We're not really passive investment. Uh, they do have outfits like that in the film industry and they're, you know, essentially the film industry version of, uh, you know, of an investment group or angel investors and they just sort of passively work money, right? So the agencies or, you know, some producer that has a track record will come to them and say, Hey, this is the movie I'd like to make. Here's why it's has a chance to break out and be like a huge financial success. Do you want to do this? And then they just slide the money from one bank account to another and then make the movie. Uh, we're a little different. So Intercut is comprised of me, uh, Brian Wright, uh, who is on IMDb Pro is our Brian Wright. Uh, and Brian is a is a younger guy. He's a you know film producer. He's been a financier in the film industry for 10, 12 years. And, uh, and then Dave Pommier, who is uh, an older gentleman in his uh, early seventies, I believe. And he's uh, just this veteran line producer. He's this guy who's been producing movies for four decades and has just seen it all. You know, he started working with uh, John Killick and Spike Lee. He's done movies with Oliver Stone. Uh, I actually met him on a Spike Lee movie that shot in Louisiana where I had, I had essentially just finished college and I worked on this movie called miracle at St. Anna that shot a little bit in Louisiana. And, uh, and then he went on to do most of Ron Bergman's movies. So Ron Bergman is an independent film producer who uh, works a lot with Ryan Johnson and uh, Dave did basically all of their movies before they, you know, got into the studio world and did uh, star Wars, the last Jedi. And uh, they also did, uh, they've gone on to do Knives Out and just, you know, had a huge deal with Netflix. They just saw I saw that. That's yeah. a crazy deal. Pretty um, crazy. Yeah. If you're looking at this and you're unfamiliar, um, Ryan Johnson and them all sold um, the rights to the next two sequels to Netflix for like $470 million or something like that. Yeah, it's, crazy like that. it's an absolutely astronomical amount of money and even more so because of the genre that that movie is in, which is it's like a murder mystery, right? Mm -hmm. Which is just, you know, good luck getting a murder mystery financed if Daniel Craig is not your star in your last movie wasn't The Last <laughs> Jedi. You know, it's not like this huge, you know, genre that everybody's just clamoring for the next great script, right? So, um, but yeah, so Dave... Um, you know, Dave uh, made made a bunch of their movies, and essentially, he's a physical production expert. Brian is a, is like a lead producer and a you know finance expert, and then I am their 
development guy. I'm their creative guy. So I've been a writer, you know, since I was very small and have written for years. And uh, yeah, so I'm their in-house creative. I, I basically read the scripts that come in and search through all the log lines and synopsis that get emailed to us and, and sort of sift through and pick what I think fits our mandate, the type of movie we're looking for. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I make some assessment about the cost it would be to produce it. Like there are just certain things you learn over time are going to be more or less difficult to set up the movie as a piece, as a financial product, which is essentially what movies are at the end of the day. And, uh, and then I, you know, move that project over to Brian and Dave and we all consult and decide if it should be our next project. Would you mind going into just a little bit like what exactly is the, uh, that mandate for your company? What kind of films do you look for that your company does? Yeah. So this is actually a great place to start because, uh, if, you know, for the people who are listening, who want to try outreach, you know, to get their scripts out there, the first thing you should be trying to identify with the group that you're reaching out to is what do they like? <laughs> like, what is their focus? And every group has one, whether it's a studio, a production company, uh, an independent producer, um, you know, uh, even actors, like if you're, you know, reaching out to, you know, some actors have their own production companies that essentially exist just to develop content for them to star in. Mm-hmm. And uh, you want to identify what are they looking for? Because if what you have is not what they're looking for, there's basically no point in even submitting it. Right. So, um, because they're just going to say no, they're just going to pass or they're not going to respond. So um, in fact, that's actually a good question to ask is what is your, what are you currently looking for? Most of them will tell you because it's very hard to find something that sort of fits what you're looking for. So if I could describe, uh, you know, what we're looking for, broadly speaking, uh, intercuts currently focusing on uh, acts. It's basically movies in the action thriller space. Uh, action thriller, sci-fi is good. Any sort of combination of those three genres, uh, and then separately, uh, if we can find a good survival horror screenplay. So survival horror is basically like Jaws. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's a horror movie that uh, is a thriller, but it doesn't have supernatural elements, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and supernatural elements sort of exclude certain foreign territories where you know they just don't buy movies that have, you know, supernatural elements essentially. So um, we try to stay away from that. So that in terms of genre is what we're looking for. Like, what is the ideal project for us? Well, the ideal project for us is a movie that can be made for a price. So it's a movie where you can make the movie for between three to $7 million, three to 7 million gross. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you can spend the money in the right places. And then, you know, this is an area <laughs> this is an area that you don't hear a lot of screenwriters talking about, uh, uh, e- even veteran ones. Like I listened to um, to Craig Mazin and, and uh, John August podcast script notes. Do you listen to this podcast? Yeah, I catch it every once in a while. Yeah. So great podcast. Those guys are super smart. And, uh, but they have come up in one area of the industry. They are studio guys, right? So what they mm-hmm. have to teach you about screenwriting is like 90%, 95% accurate, but they, I've heard them say things that are just patently wrong in the in independent film, just patently wrong. Right. So, and one of those is, um, one of those is about a uh, page count, right? Uh, so, a peach, you know, this is something I've, I've studied with Dave for years now, and Dave is just, you know, a physical production mind, right? So he's just one of these ex, these experts that's around that just knows union production better than anybody else. And uh, he, I've learned many things. I mean, I can break this down in many, uh, many specific <laughs> ways, but at the end of the day, uh, you can whittle it all down to limiting your page count, right? So a feature length mm-hmm. movie needs to be at least 85 minutes. Uh, and if you're, you know, sort of using the rule of thumb, one page equals uh, one minute of screen time, then uh, your movie needs to be more than 85 pages, essentially, right? Um, and that is never more true than when you're making an independent film. 
Uh, and you know, there's spe specific reasons why, but I can tell you that if you have a movie that is, if you have a script that's 90 to 95 pages, that is just astronomically, maybe not astronomically, but there's just a much, much greater chance that that script is going to get looked at and read over mm -hmm. a script that's 120 or 130 pages. Like it's just a, it's just a known thing. And it comes down to the amount of shooting days you have on an independent film, right? Most independent films have maybe, you know, anywhere from on the very low end, 10 days to shoot to, um, you know, the healthier end would be 20 days to shoot. And you're literally just taking the number of pages and dividing your days into it, you know, to figure out how many pages you have to shoot a day. And at 90, 95 pages, that, that puzzle usually works um, within 10 to 20 days, right? Mm -hmm. um, but at 130 pages, it's like next to impossible, right? It's just very, very difficult. So even if I loved your script and it was like a brilliant 120-page uh, script, uh, I would still go in and probably end up asking you to trim out 10 to 15 pages, if not 20 pages, uh, just so, uh, just so the math works out better, you know, you're shooting less pages per day. Um, right. So yeah, that's, that's what I'm looking for. Like if you've got an action thriller or maybe a sci-fi thriller, that's 90, 95 pages. Um, that's a screenplay I would love to read and, uh, and possibly produce. And guess what? I'm not the only one. Like there's a reason we're focusing in this area of the industry mm -hmm. and, uh, and many other people, Many other people do too. I was just watching the 2014 uh, Godzilla movie before I mm -hmm. go see uh, Godzilla versus Kong tonight, and uh, fits right in our mandate, man. Fits right in there. It's an action thriller, like tons of action, guys with guns shooting things, shooting monsters, um, and no real sci-fi. You know, I mean, I mean, no real uh, tons of sci-fi, but no real supernatural. Like there aren't any ghosts. It's all sort of explainable within a certain, you know, science fiction enhanced world. Correct. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it's just funny, like how that, that sort of sweet spot echoes throughout the industry in contrast to something like, um, I'm trying to think of another, something we would not like uh, a really dark drama is a hard sell, you know, not right. that, not that they can't be profitable. Some of my, favorite movies uh or not that they can't be good either i mean some of my favorite movies of all time are dark dramas like i love i love magnolia and i love uh i love manchester by the sea i think that's a brilliant film on so many levels um but it's just not going to be at the top of my list to to produce at intercut and uh yeah just before we get away from the whole page count thing i think it's also very difficult when you get to that 120 130 pages just to get someone to read for the sheer like time commitment that it is. I interned as, as a script reader, among other things, for a company the last uh, two summers. And I know that like I would just push off those scripts in favor <laughs> of the ones that were like 80, 90 yeah. pages just because like I could get through them faster. Yeah, there's a there's an anecdote I heard one time. You're absolutely right about that. I mean, I'm the same way when something's like somebody I know personally is a good friend handed me like a 130 page drama a couple of years ago and I just fought reading it forever. Cause it's just so, it's just so long. Um, mm -hmm. you know, now that said, you can usually read the first 30 or 40 pages and decide if it's something that fits what you're looking for, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you know, most of my comments and most of my experience are going to be centered around independent, uh, making independent feature films. Right. Um, you know, we get a lot of requests to do TV series or people want us to read their pilots. And uh, that's just on a whole other side of the industry. You know, that's uh, it costs so much to make a television series that very, very few are financed independently. So um, I do know of one or two that have been, but they are, <laughs> you know, they are very much the, the exception uh, to the rule. So let's say I'm listening to this right now and I think, hey, I have a really great survival uh, horror script right here. How would I get it to you? Because I know that you said your website's a little misleading so that you don't get like a whole lot of <laughs> yeah. cold calls. So how do I physically get you my script? 
Yeah, so you can uh, you just email it to us. Uh, it's uh, we have an email address set up. Yeah, it's uh, submissions at intercutcapital.com. and uh, essentially all we need is a log line and a synopsis. Like usually that's enough to, that to tell me is this going to fit within our genre mandate, and and if it is, we'll reply and ask you you know for next steps to read the screenplay, et cetera, et cetera. But um. You know, some people, uh, you know, there might be a dissenter out there who says, you know, you can't know everything about my movie by hearing the title, the logline and the synopsis. Um, but the truth is that I should be able to. I think Santa Jaws proves that very well. <laughs> Santa Jaws. It's a, it's a classic. It's a classic. I mean, I really do. I love Santa Jaws <laughs> and I will be talking about it a little bit more later. Um, I have nothing but but uh, love and affection for Santa Jaws. Yeah, man. It's uh, well, you know, something about that title that is really, I think great is, um, is it's obvious. Like there's a thing I learned uh, in my days in marketing where I, I always say this, that, that good marketing is obvious marketing. You know, uh, if you watch a Coca-Cola commercial uh, that's, you know, their, their Coca-Cola Santa Claus or whatever, um, he's drinking an awful lot of Coke in that commercial, right? Because that's what mm -hmm. they want you to do. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If you watch a Ray-Ban commercial, they're in the sun, there's beautiful people, and everybody's wearing Ray-Bans because that's what they want you to do. It's it's very obvious, right? And when you read the title, Santa Jaws, um, it may seem a little reductive, but um, you know it's very obvious what you're going to get when you watch that movie. There's going to be Christmas stuff, and there's going to be Jaws stuff. Right. It's exactly why we watched it. <laughs> so, yeah, there's just, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, there there has to be an obviousness to how you are describing your movie to people. Like some people, you know, may, again, you know, there's, I, I imagine there are dissenters who are saying, you know, well, that's like reductive. And the truth is like, if you can't reduce what your movie is to a good title, a log line and a synopsis, then your movie is probably unmarketable. People are not going to be able to market the movie, which means it's probably going to be a financial failure. Right? So, um, you gotta, you gotta have those things. And, uh, I don't know if you've ever read, uh, there's this book that's out there, a screenwriting book called, uh, save the cat. Have you ever read this book? I've not actually read it, but I have I have been referenced to it many a time. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's it's out there. It's been out there for a long time. Like personally, uh, I went back uh, maybe a couple of years ago and read through. I never. I mean, I learned to write screenplays just from reading screenplays and working in the industry and watching movies and thinking about them, etc. But I went back and read all of the screenwriting books to just sort of have that common language with other people that came up that way and sort of use that uh, verbiage, that language as they process through their own, their own writing and uh, save the cat. Uh, I think it's process, like it's step-by-step -step process for writing a screenplay is actually like really obtuse. It's really counterintuitive. And I just can't even, I can't even imagine trying to think about that stuff while I actually write a screenplay. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that that book gets right is the first chapter, like all in the first chapter, there is a great approach that uh, the guy recommends where he, he basically defines an order of operations that uh, you should undertake as a writer. So you don't want to start by with a vomit draft. You don't want to start by saying, I got a story and then blah, here's 120 pages of it. Let me go backwards and figure out what my synopsis is, what my logline is, what my title is. That's very difficult and very, very rarely works out. What you want to do instead is you want to come up with uh, your title, your logline, and your synopsis. Like you want to come up with those things. Like that's a couple of hours of work, maybe think about it over a week, hone it, refine it. But if your idea for a movie can generate or be synthesized down into a title, a logline, and a synopsis, it's probably something that people will be interested in. It's probably something that, uh, you know, where if, if you can make that interesting, then you can, 
uh, obviously get past gatekeepers and get past those sort of first filters. Um, but you can also probably market the movie, right? There's probably obvious cues as to what the genre of the story is going to be, right? Um, and what, you know, broadly speaking, the story itself is going to be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can't whittle down your idea for a movie into those things, you probably shouldn't uh, waste your time writing a screenplay. Like I know many people who have gotten lost right in the, you know, in, in the thick of uh, final draft uh, pages whizzing past their screen and they just can't reduce it. They can't describe it. And uh, that means it's probably not going to be made. It just is what it is. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but on, you know, there is like, a practicality uh, career wise, right outside of the realm of the creative with the order of operations that the save the cat author suggests, uh, because that's also the easiest part, right? Like the title is the fewest words you're going to write about this story. The log line, a little more expansive, but still it's like a sentence or two. Right. And then a short synopsis is like, you know, maybe 150 words. You know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. so compare that to a feature length screenplay, which is going to be 10 to 15,000 words, right? That's just the amount of work involved is, is uh, radically different. And whenever I've encountered other writers, like people who do this professionally, you know, long, just along the way, um, as I've encountered them, no matter how they've come up, they usually have figured this out at some point and they have a little scratch notepad or a, you know, I, I just use the notes app on my phone and, uh, you know, they have some place where they come up with titles and come up with log lines and synopsis. And then they, maybe they flesh it out to a treatment. If they really have like a bigger idea, you know, maybe something that's, you know, a couple thousand words, but, um, but it's not a screenplay. They're not starting with the screenplay. Right. And it's for mm-hmm. the same reason you don't want to start by building an entire car. <laughs> like you don't want to, you don't, <laughs> You don't want to just say, you know what? I have an idea for a car time to build it. Like you want to step back and you want to say, you know, okay, before I invest all of this, all of these resources, right. And your resource as a writer is your time and your taste really. Uh, So before you invest all of that, I mean, it, you know, usually takes for a good script. It usually takes at least two months. And before you invest that, uh, it, it definitely behooves you to sit down and come up with a title, a log line and a synopsis first, right? I wish it took two months to write a script. I don't think I've ever written one in fewer than eight. <laughs> what's, what's the fastest you've ever written one? Six to eight months, I would say. And that was after I finally started like outlining beforehand. So that actually sped the process up for me. I found the same. Um, I don't really do, you know, Roman numeral outlines. Like what I do instead is... I essentially write a treatment that's like a page long treatment that has all the beats in it, but it's, it's prose. Like it's, it's something you can read and it feels like mm-hmm. a cohesive piece of prose. Uh, and uh, it works, it works pretty great for me, but you know, this, this is something that this is one of the reasons why I don't think there are many novelists who uh, make the jump to screenwriting. And it's because screenwriting is just harder. It, it, it is such a technical craft. And, mm-hmm. uh, and the more you can learn about why it's, you know, why it is technical, you know, why you have these boundaries and rules of thumb, uh, the more you can learn about that, ultimately, the better your screenplays are going to be. But the problem is, is in the beginning, it's really hard to ingest all of that and write a good story. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. I mean, for me personally, uh, I was talking about this on uh, Clubhouse, the uh, the app, which has been adopted widely by the the film industry. Are you on Clubhouse yet? I just learned about Clubhouse, and I think my professor like sent me an invite for Clubhouse. I can't figure out how to get on it though. But I this is something I just learned about. So yeah, you should you should definitely get on. I mean, it's definitely taking the place of private parties in in Los Angeles, and just in terms of networking. And yeah, it's great. I mean, uh, we've we've had a good time. And, you know, one of the things I was talking about with this, uh, with this group of um, screenwriters, some of whom are more veteran than me and some of whom are younger, is uh, I 
screwed up big time in the early part of my career by reading way too many screenplays. And it was the wrong kind of screenplay. Like I read, uh, I read what was readily available to me. This is by the way, before I actually started working in film, Mm -hmm. I, I came up, you know, on set in film production, but before I got into the industry, you know, I knew I, I wanted to essentially write. And so I started reading all these screenplays, right? And you can just go on the internet. This is in the 2000s. So you can just go on the internet and search and every screenplay ever pops up for your reading pleasure. And uh, so I read all these screenplays and I saw all the formatting, which is just this brand new thing. And, you know, I'm sort of a rule follower. So I was like, I got to follow the rules. I got to do all this stuff. And uh, I later found out that this is after I sort of corrupted a lot of like the, you know, whatever natural um, descriptive architecture was in my brain. Uh, I realized that these were all shooting scripts, right? So there was oh. this sort of uh, dry uh, tone to the prose. A lot of the tone had been mm-hmm. it, it sort of, you know, washed out from it. And the document just becomes, uh, you know, as it goes from being sold to being mm-hmm. uh, cast and then, you know, in, in through the development, early prep, and then true pre-production before you actually shoot the movie, you know, the more uh, departments you bring on, uh, frequently uh, the script changes and the description, right? So every basically everything mm-hmm. but the, the dialogue becomes uh, more standardized and more technical for a reason, right? So right. for instance, uh, the scene headers where it says like, uh, you know, interior house, right? Well, um, just for the sake of readability, if it's in a house, like you don't you usually don't know what house you're shooting in when you're writing the script, right? That's all for locations and the yeah. director later on. You know, now I would just go through and write, interior house right or interior kitchen and it would just be assumed by the context that that's in the house right right uh just because it slows people down if they have to read really detailed scene headers uh but once the ad's get their hands on it and load it into movie magic uh budgeting and scheduling uh and they're doing their things well there is a technical reason why you need to standardize those headers so instead of interior kitchen i would have interior house um, kitchen day right I, I just have to be super specific and wouldn't be able to rely on the context as much right mm-hmm. so that's how i learned to write was with all that stuff and i look back at the earlier things i wrote and they're just so devoid of of tone right they're so right. devoid of like the comforts of <laughs> of good writing Right. Shooting script is more of just like, it's like a, just a manual. It's like an instruction. It, it, there's not a whole lot of like personality in that. It's just supposed to like tell the people working what we're doing. It is a, yeah, it is a yeah. very technical document. And, you know, look, I mean, sometimes they don't change that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, it all just depends on, on the team that's working on the movie. But when there are production rewrites being done and, and the script is being touched a lot throughout the production process, and you are having five, six, seven revisions, you know, the multicolored revisions that are part of uh, production revisions, you know, it, it just ends up being uh, sort of, uh, you lose the tone, right. which is the, the thing that makes a good screen. One of the things that makes a good screenplay good is a very specific tone, right? And uh, all that gets washed out so that like props knows they have to bring a cigar to the scene or, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, or wardrobe knows that this dress needs to be red. Right. So, um, you know, all those things um, can change a, a screenplay. And that's what I read because that's what was available to me. Right. Like that's what was on the internet. Like normally a movie gets finished and then the script that would leak or make its way out into the world is some version of a production draft because there are just so many people that have a PDF copy of production drafts. You know, I mean, there's hundred people on a crew or something. So, um, you know, it's just so much easier for those to leak. And I went through a rediscovery process where I went back and had to sort of reclaim and, and actually by, I did it by writing a lot of prose, uh, and writing a lot of, um, of, uh, fiction essentially. Um, and that, and was able to sort of you know, reclaim that ability to infuse the screenplays that I'm writing with, with a tone that's compelling, with the tone that lets you know mm-hmm. this is supposed to be funny or this is supposed to be scary, right? Because at the end of the day, genre is is primarily about tone. Like you can take uh, a screenplay, 
you can take a a movie that essentially has most of the same story beats and uh, make it a comedy or make it a you know a tense action thriller just by the use of tone, right? I mean, you take a movie like uh, you know an example that's pretty good is like uh, is Pineapple Express. Have you seen this movie, the Seth Rogen, James Franco? I'm movie? very aware of it. I actually haven't seen it. Super fun. Definitely check it out. You know, that movie is super funny, but with a different director, like if John Hillcote had directed that, I mean, his stuff tends to be a lot darker, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it would it would not have been a comedy, <laughs> you know? Um, you would not have labeled it a stoner comedy. It would have been much more of like a taut thriller, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that would have moved it from, you know, from one genre to the next, essentially. Um, and what that looks like on the page is the, the way you know, the words are crafted, just read funny or they read scary or they read tense. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, those are all just like, uh, the things that, you know, it's, it's just the, to me, that's like the true, uh, masterclass in screenwriting is understanding how to use tone to, uh, to polish, uh, all of the, all of the technical aspects that need to be there in a screenplay. How many screenplays would you say are on your desk right now just waiting for you to go through and reject or say this could be something? I move through them pretty quickly. Um, If it's something that's not in uh, our genre wheelhouse, I I will immediately kick it back. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there, you know, sometimes you'll get pushback and people say, no, I disagree. This really is, you know, an action comedy. And then I'll reply and show them exactly why it's not, (laughs) you know, uh, as as an example, uh, we were we were talking about this the other day in Clubhouse about uh, pitch decks. Pitch decks are awesome. Have you seen pitch decks? I don't know how much they float around outside of the industry. Yeah, I have. I, I think I made one for one script, and then I just never did anything with it. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. So pitch decks are really awesome, uh, and personally, I prefer them to uh, like uh, sizzle trailers, or sometimes they call them ripomatics, which is like where you're cutting scenes from different films. Mm-hmm. together and saying this is totally what my film would be like right right um just because like by doing that you sort of inherently are just borrowing whatever is in these other movies yeah you know uh so um that's helpful if i haven't seen the movies but at this point i've just seen everything so like <laughs> you know um you know if you show me something from uh if you show me the joker from the dark Knight, i'm just gonna think about the dark Knight. i'm not gonna think about mm-hmm. your unique take on on that sort of you know, group of clown, clown and, you know, thriller movie tropes. Right. Hmm. Um, so personally, I don't find them. Uh, I mean, there, there are some good ones. I've seen some really exceptional ones, but on the whole, most of, most of like the, you know, uh, sizzle trailers or ripomatics this year, are not great, but a pitch deck is different. A pitch deck is like, to me, like if you can, if you've got a good title log line synopsis, uh, and a pitch deck, um, like that will tell me a lot about what your movie is. And, and could you just describe real quickly what a pitch deck actually is? Yeah. So a pitch deck is essentially like a pitch deck is essentially like a eight to 10 page, uh, maybe more, maybe less PDF document that pitches the movie. Right. And it tells you a little bit about what the movie is with, with, uh, words and, and, uh, pictures. So, you know, they may use, stills of cast members from different movies you know there's graphic design involved there's you know you're obviously choosing fonts and titles Mm -hmm. and you know it is a creative endeavor like it is something where you need to work with a a, a really good graphic designer to create something that represents the tone of the movie that you want to make right and great pitch decks do that great great pitch decks i i look at them and I'm like, all right, I know exactly what they want me to think this movie is. And then usually I read the screenplay and uh, it's accurate. <laughs> you know, the screenplay feels exactly like the pitch deck feels right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good pitch deck. A bad pitch deck is almost always uh, sort of self contradictory, right? So you'll have either in writing or with images like very confusing contradictory representations of like what the movie is. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, inevitably I'll kind of reply and be like, look, I'm a little, I'm a little confused. Is the movie supposed to be, you know, dark 
and funny and inspiring. Right. And they'll be like, yes, it's all these things. And it's like, well, I mean, is it though? <laughs> like, you know, it's like, it just is hard. It's just hard to believe. Like you just have to be to pull all that, you know, some of the things I've seen in pitch decks, like, you know, I mean, to pull all of it off in one movie, you're just like, you have to be the second coming of David Lynch or something, you know? I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. and if you've never made a movie before, it's just sort of hard to believe that you're going to be able to do that. But more specifically, I'm also looking for um, certain things that I've just sort of learned um, over the years or not for us. So like, um, you know, for instance, we try to stay away from uh, thrillers with supernatural elements. Now there are some great movies you know, great thrillers that have supernatural elements, but we try to uh, stay away from them for the most part. That's just something specific to our group, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, an example of a very confusing pitch deck was, uh, you know, I received from a producer and it was a couple of producers and a director. I received uh, their pitch deck and the director had done a very critically acclaimed uh, TV show, you know, that uh, that I know of. My friends have worked on it and I know you know, they do good work on there. So I was, you know, sort of curious to look at the pitch deck and it was all over the place. I had no idea what this movie was about. And I replied and was like, you know, can you sort of like, what genre is this? Like, it, you know, you, you, you say it's dark, you say it's a thriller, you say it's inspiring. Uh, is it a hor- Is it a horror movie or is it like just a thriller? And you say it's inner, it's like inner city and and it's you know drug trade and it's just like so many like contradictory things where it's like this could be dark city or this could be heat i just have no idea right Mm -hmm. like i just it's just all over the place and they were like no 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 and i was like okay well does it have supernatural elements and they were like you know one of the dudes jumps in and it was like no absolutely not there's no supernatural elements whatsoever man you're good to go and then I just screenshotted. It was like an entire page of the deck, pasted it into the email. And I was like, then what is this? And it was like <laughs> this picture of this like terrifying, like uh, ghoul that had filed down teeth, like sharp filed down, you know, V-shaped teeth, mm-hmm. you know, totally. Like based on the exorcist. Was, dude, it was, it was just like, I'm just like, how, how, how do you explain this, this then? Yeah, how does this fit into the very grounded, not non-supernatural movie that you're describing to me, you know? Um, and that's a particularly bad case. But, you know, again, it just has to be... There were so many self-contradictory things in that pitch deck that it that's what makes a bad pitch mm-hmm. deck, right? Um, but they can be incredibly powerful tools. And, and uh, I would say, you know, especially like if you're still in school and you got some friends that are studying graphic design, go make, go make some friends. Cause you're going to, you're going to need them as you try to pitch your movies around town. So I would kind of like to do a bit of a case study. If you could perhaps walk me through the steps that got, as an example, Santa Jaws on screen and why that was uh, chosen for funding or uh, production over maybe something else, maybe something similar or different. <laughs> well, the way that works specifically, uh, and you know, Santa Jaws was something where we came in and uh, and helped finance it after those creative decisions that were were made. But my wow. friends were the were the ones that were the you know the leading creatives on that and produced that film. So I know everybody involved, and we just did a piece of the financing as it was moving. Okay. But, but essentially, the way that works is, um, and this is true of any, you know, of any movie that's going to uh, maybe a traditional cable channel, cabler as they're known. And essentially, uh, so this is, you know, I ha- I know many people that make uh, Hallmark Lifetime sci-fi movies, and what's great about those is you can they will they're they're relatively simple to finance. Not to say that they're easy to finance, but they're relatively simple. So. Uh, imagine you're you're a producer who has, you know, some some street cred, right? Um, you're not a complete unknown, but you know you've done stuff. Uh, you've come up with, you know, one producer, and that producer has made Hallmark movies or whatever, right? Well, you can go to Hallmark, and once they trust you to to, you know, deliver uh, what they want, they will give you uh, what's called an MG, a minimum guarantee, right? Hmm. And uh, so they will give this to you. And essentially all it is is a contract that defines what they want and then gives you a guarantee of a certain amount of 
money, right? So, um, you know, it may be a worldwide MG or it might be just a domestic MG. Uh, and then uh, you're pitching ideas to them. So, you know, you go and you might pitch four, five, six, seven, eight ideas um, that are all sort of, you know, if you're pitching to sci-fi, you're pitching four different Jaws movies and then a haunted house movie. And, you know, you're just sort of coming up with these concepts, right? Uh, so again, you're really pitching like a title, a log line and a synopsis to a network, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, they pick the ones they want, maybe they tweak it. And then somebody essentially writes the screenplay. Um, the minimum guarantee is drawn up. And then uh, you go get uh, financing against that. MG. So um, that MG is known as uh, is what's called bankable paper. So you can, it's really trustworthy. You know, sci-fi is not going out of business. You know, it's not the same as like, you know, um, Granny Smith's film company giving you an MG. Like who knows how, how solid her financials are, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so you can take that MG and you can go and get a loan from a bank, uh, like say the National Bank of Canada uh, or from a private uh, lender, right? Um, and that is some of the lending that Intercut Capital does is uh, we will do lending against uh, MGs like that. Yeah, so uh, then you make the movie. So they give you the MG, you go get a loan against that MG, and that's your budget, whatever whatever that amount of money ends up being. And they do vary in size, you know, from a couple hundred thousand to over a million dollars. And they give you that money, you make the movie, and then when you deliver it to their specifications, it's got to be something they want, right? And it's got to be, uh, you know, in line with their particular uh, uh, ethos or their particular peccadillos, right? Like I've heard from different people that like Hallmark, for instance, is really specific about the wardrobe their characters wear. And then they're all specific about cast, you know, um, they might w- they might have their own cast lists of who their audience uh, wants. But um you know, they, they may be people you or I have never heard of, but to their audience, mm-hmm. they have some value, right? So, um, yeah, so you cast those people, you make the movie, you deliver it to their sort of specifications and conversation with them most of the way. And then when you deliver it, um, it's actually just called delivery. Then they pay out that MG and they give you that amount of money. You pay off your loan and then, you know, pocket whatever the profit is off of that. Why do you think there are so many shark movies? <laughs> if I turn on the Sci-Fi channel, there's an 80% chance that there's a movie with uh, the word shark in the title. And I, I'm just curious <laughs> if you have any insight as to why those are so popular. You know, most of, uh, most of it's would probably be speculation on, on my, uh, on my side, but um, the, the simple answer is there's just an audience for it. You know, there is an audience uh, and uh, that's why they keep making them and people keep watching them. Uh, and that's not the case of, uh, I mean, obviously we, there have been huge successes in that genre before. I mean, Jaws was right. The one. Yeah. Jaws was huge. I mean, Jaws like was this sea change in what people thought a movie could make financially. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, it wasn't until maybe Batman 1989, which people regard as like the true beginning of the blockbuster era that you know the industry changed again but jaws was huge man everybody i mean summer was like a dumping ground and then when jaws dropped i mean it it really changed everybody's understanding of of the fact that this was like a year-round industry (laughs) like people wanted to watch movies in the summer right Mm -hmm. so um yeah i mean it's there's huge historical precedent uh and this is something that that uh you know is you know, again, just sort of basic uh, marketing, not specific to the film industry, but people like something they like something that they're familiar with, but it's just like a little different. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they like they like uh, a shark movie, but, you know, maybe this one's maybe this one flies. Maybe, maybe this it's one Christmas is a, time is it is in a tornado. Maybe it's Christmas time. Right. You know, everybody they like p- audiences like something that's familiar, but just with a, a little bit a little bit of a twist. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some reason, shark movies, man, um, they, they just, they just maintain, man, they're out there, um, and they're great and they work at many different budget levels. Uh, you know, my friends that make them, uh, you know, literally just have a motorized shark that they keep in storage somewhere break out that fin baby. Oh, wow. <laughs> anytime, anytime they need a shark fin, you know, 
but um, it should have its own IMDb page. It should. It should. It really should. Yeah, it's interesting. Now that said, in contrast, um, there are some genres that I'm just still personally hurt are dead. <laughs> and one of them is uh, the Western genre, mm. the Western genre, which, and I have no idea why this is. I mean, I know sort of vaguely, I mean, at one time, you know, the U S was making, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours of Western entertainment and exporting it to the world. And it was like one of the biggest genres in the industry. And, uh, and, at one point, uh, after, you know, television was big, there was, you know, what there was Westerns on TV every night. There were, you know, new Westerns in theaters every other weekend or whatever. And it was just this monster, uh, genre, but it's just a known thing now in the film industry that, uh, Westerns underperform. They don't travel that well. They're not worth as much overseas for whatever reason. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, they just don't travel well. I mean, there was, you know, a great Western project that we recently looked at with just a legendary director um, and four great names, like a really great cast. Uh, You would know all of them. (laughs) And uh, and we really wanted to do it, but it was a Western. Right. Mm -hmm. And we knew that there was just they they wanted to make it for a little more than than we understood it should be made for and you know uh there's always that sort of push and pull back and forth between you know the people who represent the money wanting to make their money back and uh, the people who are making the movie that want as much money as possible to make the movie right mm-hmm. um so you want to find like you want to find a happy medium there and uh, and it's just uh, it's just tough with westerns. They're just um, you know they just don't perform as well in terms of worldwide sales. And I have no idea why because we've exported those to the world for a hundred years. Yeah, that is interesting. I, I just go back to Toy Story that the cowboys went away when people got interested in spacemen. <laughs> Maybe that's it. <laughs> yeah, there's there's certainly amount of that. And you know one thing one thing that that is certainly uh, one thing that's certainly present uh, in other genres are Western tropes. You know, um, I mean, I I think there's, you know, this is just like my writer brain, but I'm always looking for the sort of both and scenario where I can actually have my cake and eat it too, right? So mm-hmm. I can have a Western, but it's a present day Western. It's not period. And, you know, I can have cowboys, I can have outlaws, and I can cast... Ben Foster and Chris uh, Pine. I had to figure out which Chris it was. Chris Pine and uh, Jeff Bridges and make Keller high water. Right. I mean, that's essentially Western. It's just present day. Right. Mm-hmm. So a little bit, a little bit more attractive. Um, and really it's a, it's, it's a, uh, it's really like a crime thriller um, with sort of uh that's tonally a Western. Right. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I mean, uh, there, but there's other movies. I mean, I would argue uh, the Dark Knight trilogy is those. That's just a Western, man. Those are all Westerns, right? The only difference is it's Batman slapped on top of it. Hmm. But um, you know, the 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 Western tropes are just all all over those those movies. Mm-hmm. Before we end this, I, I wanted to play a quick game with you, if you. Have sure. the time. Um, I want to throw out a uh, a title and a log line for something that I've written, and I just want a quick. There's five of these. I just want a quick. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yes, super or no, fun. Why you think it wouldn't work? And after talking to you, there's two of these already that I know you wouldn't go for. <laughs> yeah. So before we start, like, uh, yeah. I wanna I wanna say something that's uh, that I believe is a hundred percent true. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I, I the longer I'm in the industry, the more this is just reinforced, but. Essentially, like um, there is a good and bad version of every idea, right? Mm-hmm. So, like uh, the the real skill, the real thing of value, is the execution of the idea, right? right? Like there is the only difference between um, man. What can I say here that's not going to get me in trouble? <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll just skip the specific examples. But yeah. you know, the only difference between a movie that is uh, becomes legendary and is watched for decades. And one that doesn't get made is the execution. It's it's how well that idea is exploited or crafted 
into a story, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, yeah, so there, there really is, I, I just always want to underscore, there is nothing special about an idea. Like you can take any yeah. idea and make a great screen reader will make a great screenplay out of it and a bad one will make a bad version that'll never get made. So it's really more about craft than specific ideas, if that makes sense. All right, let's go. Okay, and before we start, I also want to say, I'm not saying all of these thinking that um, they're all great and should deserve being made. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's some of these that I really don't like and I don't think anyone <laughs> yeah, yeah. and they're yeah, not man. available on my website. <laughs> you, st- you still got to get them out, man. Even, yeah. if, even if it's like a bad idea, you got to get it out of your brain so it doesn't, it doesn't poison the, you know, the quote unquote good ideas. Mm-hmm. Okay, All right, let's go. All right. So I'll read the, the log line first and then give you the title. A brother and sister return home to deal with the aftermath of their mother's passing, but soon find themselves haunted, not by the spirit of the recently deceased, but by the ghost of a past trauma that they themselves brought to life. And that's called tulpa. So what is tulpa? What does the uh, word mean? Tulpa, the definition of a tulpa is a thought form energy ghost. So it is... It is a ghost that only becomes real because you think it into existence. It's not from a from a person that ever lived. Interesting. Interesting. Mm. Uh, it's definitely it's definitely intriguing. That's one of the supernatural yeah. ones that I. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely intriguing. I mean, the word tulpa I like. There's something about the sound of it that's like. Uh, makes me think it might not be right for the title. It's almost like makes me feel like uh, warm Polish thoughts. Oh, <laughs> you know, <interesting>. okay. <laughs> it sounds like some sort of like a beautiful Polish dance that I watched an old grandma do one time, you know, she's okay. dancing the Tulpa, <laughs> you know? Yeah. She started with Polka and then moved on to Tulpa, you know? <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, but I like, I mean, I love, I mean, there's obviously great stuff in that, that realm, I mean, hereditary, I think, kind of fits neatly in there somewhere. That was it's most definitely great. a uh, an yeah. inspiration. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, hereditary is awesome. A million bad versions of movies trying to do what hereditary did, but mm-hmm. they they just executed on every level with that movie. But yeah, there's definitely something there. Um, I would, and also, please uh, be honest. Yeah. Don't like, yeah, 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 yeah. Just because, yeah, I, I'm. I'm I'm sort of like uh, I'm sort of sorting through it. Like mm-hmm. I would uh, try to formulate the log line so that it's just a real surprise that it's not their mother haunting them. Okay, you know. Um. So whatever whatever uh you can do to formulate that and make that a surprise will will make will make the log line pop. You wanna. You want to walk people down that road like you just know it's their mother and then it ends up not being that, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Um. Yeah, very, very interesting though. Okay, so next. Yes. After being framed for murder, a homeless Vietnam veteran sets out to clear his name with the help of a boardwalk tattoo artist by searching the underbelly of a cheerful New Jersey beach town for the real culprit. And the title of that is Pleasant Point which is a uh, a play on the town of Point Pleasant, which is very close to where I live. There's a lot of good stuff there. It feels kind of like um, I'm talking about the feeling I get when I hear it, because mm-hmm. like that's ultimately what marketing is, is it's like what people are going to feel when they hear or read it. Right. So to me, this feels like uh, if you took Midnight Cowboy and turned it into some sort of uh, thriller or like a, a horror movie or a dark thriller have you seen blue ruin yes so i didn't realize this this is i i think that this is the worst script that i've written mm-hmm. because i realized after the fact that when i went back and i decided to rewatch blue ruin a lot of this script is blue ruin <laughs> <laughs> now had you seen it before you wrote it i i watched blue ruin like two or three years before yeah, and I guess something about it just kind of seeped into my head. So it's kind of like Blue Ruin, but uh, on a New Jersey on the Jersey Shore. Interesting, interesting. I like it. I think the title, the title's not obvious. Like it feels like a darker mm-hmm. thriller, and the title uh, is the opposite of that, right? Yeah, the title is Pleasant Point. So there is a version of that that can work, but you're you almost for the title to work, you almost need 
uh, you almost need to see it on a poster and see that the tone of the movie is going to be dark, mm-hmm. right? Right. You have to see that it's sort of everything is not as it seems, and you know it's not really pleasant point. Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah, but I like it. It, it kind of has like a, you know, the first thing that leaped to mind was you know the Stephen King novel Salem's Lot. Uh, I'm vaguely familiar with. It. I can't pull the plot into my head at the moment. So Salem's Lot is essentially a retelling of Dracula, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's in the U.S. and it's you know it's just a small town and it's very soap opera y. The bones of it are the soap opera of the small town that is being interrupted by the arrival of Dracula. Like mm-hmm. that's essentially what Salem's Lot is. And King borrowed a lot from a show, a television, like a, a primetime soap opera back in the seventies called Peyton's place. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was that heavily, heavily influenced the characters and, and the locale of Salem's lot. So, th- so what you that was really kind of the first thing that leapt to mind. It's like, you're, you're taking things that are familiar or familiar to you mm-hmm. and then telling like a darker story in the same place. Does that hit home? Is that what, is that what your intent is? Yeah, I, I think so. I think that's a good way just to, to uh, describe yeah. it. I do like the thing I like about it is the log line is wonderfully specific. Like I get a fee, a very specific feel for who these two main characters are. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. And they feel, they feel like oddballs and pleasant point. Like they feel like they stick out. So mm-hmm. If that's your intention, all of, the, all of that's successful. Awesome. All right. Next one. Set over the course of the 1990s in New York City, a young man's life is thrown into a downward spiral after entering the lucrative yet unethical world of telephone psychics and rising to the top. And that's called Father Afiukas, which is, uh, Afiukas is the name of a little-known zodiac sign. So the title would never fly. That I'm aware reasons. of. I like yeah. the title, but I know it's not. Well, yeah, cool. it's one of the it's one of those things that's like sometimes like there are, you know, proper nouns or things that just feel iconic and you want to weave them into a story and make them iconic. And it's mm-hmm. always sort of a, a back and forth, whether or not they work as the title or if they're too inaccessible and they need to just be the thing you always, you know, remember from inside the story right Mm -hmm. like uh, like for instance like you take a great a a great sort of counter example is uh the exorcist right Mm -hmm. so look i mean it does not get more obvious than calling your horror movie the exorcist right (laughs) like exorcisms are going to happen in this movie right like captain obvious is obvious Mm -hmm. so um that's a great title and it's one of the reasons why it's ripped off so frequently. And there's always the exorcism of, you know, this, that, and the other. Um, but uh, in that movie, in The Exorcist, uh, the little girl actually calls her friend, calls the demon Captain Howdy, right? So I love that. That's one of, I mean, Captain Howdy is so spooky. And if you've seen the movie, mm-hmm. just hearing the name is just sort of chilling because you know what it is. It's this thing that you think is your friend, but it's really the devil. Yeah. (laughs) Right. But that would not have worked as the title of that movie because it's not obvious. Yeah. You know, if I saw like in a Sunday paper listing or, you know, now, now with an app, you can just pull up the trailer and kind of know what it is. But captain howdy is, uh, especially at that time, not a great title because it's not obviously a horror title. Right. Mm -hmm. So you're sort of giving up on your, your, um, you're giving up one of the primary tools in your toolkit as a filmmaker who's trying to get somebody to watch your your movie, right? So, uh, what what was the word again? It's father what? Afiukas, which is just hard to spell in general. Yeah, so it it's just it's just tough. I would assume if I heard that title. Um, for the next couple, it might be fun to tell me the title and I'll give you my feelings on what it is. Okay, the next and one is very can, obvious. <laughs> yeah, then we, then we can dive in. But Father Afiukas sounds like a movie starring Anthony Hopkins as like a dedicated Jesuit priest who's just trying to improve the community in Boston, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then what was the logline again? 
Set over the course of the 1990s in New York City, a young man's life is thrown into a downward spiral after entering the lucrative yet unethical world of telephone psychics and rising to the top. So there's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, I think you need to move the 90s setting to the end of that log line. Okay. Um, if you want to email that one to me, I can sort of recook it for you. Oh, wow. Thank you. But, but there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of interesting, a lot of interesting stuff in there. And it's all about what people are going to read first, right? Like people read left to right Mm -hmm. and they obviously start at the beginning of a sentence and go to the end. So to me, like a time period is almost always something that's not central to what's going on. The character and the character story is almost always central or should always be central. Mm -hmm. So it's, I think better to build in the mind, the type of character this is, which you can do with a name or a descriptor, like, you know, uh, you know, a very fat boy or a very wrinkly old man or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and then talk about the journey, which in this, in this, uh, instance, the journey seems pretty interesting. It feels a little, you know, it, it just feels cool. A little Wolf of Wall Streety, mm-hmm. a little, uh, a little, uh, boiler roomy. If you've ever seen boiler room, mm-hmm. but yeah, that feels kind of cool. And then I would add the thing about the time period at the end of it. Okay. Cause it just provides this big context that is going to turn whatever the reader's preconception is on its head when they realize it's a period piece at the end. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's what I, but yeah, if you want to email that to me, I can kind of recook it and show you what I'm talking about. That is uh, incredibly generous of you. Thank you. Um, okay, so you want the the title next? Yeah, let's do title first. Okay. And this will be interesting because to me, to someone who knows the content of it, <laughs> it becomes very obvious. Uh, so the title of this one is Shakespeare and the King in Yellow. Shakespeare and the King in Yellow. Hmm. Well, it's really hard to say Shakespeare and not think of uh, and not think of uh, Shakespeare. <laughs> um, not think of you know um, the Brits. Mm-hmm. So it makes me feel like it's going to be some. The King in Yellow makes me think of True Detective, uh, the Yellow King. So it kind of makes me feel like uh, it's either going to be uh, a comedy. Um. Or it's going to be some Southern Gothic uh, bit of Shakespearean tragedy. Are either one of those close? Interesting. Comedy, no. Um, <laughs> I will say that uh, the the title and, and the plot points from um, True Detective come from the same origin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess I'll go through the logline. A jealous contemporary of William Shakespeare tries to outdo the bard by writing a new play of his own, but unknowingly unleashes Lovecraftian evils when the ideas start coming to him in strange dreams. Well, that is 100% my shit, so I would definitely <laughs> want, want to watch this movie. I would probably change the title so that Shakespeare is not the first. There are so many, especially after Shakespeare and Love. Mm-hmm. Uh, which that's, that's the point I hadn't thought about. Yeah, which obviously won Best Picture. There's mm-hmm. just a million Shakespeare and philosophy, Shakespeare and this, Shakespeare and that. It's just such an obvious name. Interesting. I kind of honestly, I kind of thought that it was the best title of the bunch, just because it was so obvious. If you know the um, well, the story of the King in Yellow, and then everyone knows mm-hmm. Shakespeare. To me, it was kind of like Santa Jaws. You know, you're getting Santa. You know, you're getting Jaws. Mm-hmm. But I, I see. Hmm. Your point. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, there's there's some other formulation of the same uh, of the same things, the same nouns, the same phrasings that would be good. But I would probably finish with Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. It's almost like when I hear Shakespeare, I think great theater and a very specific time period in England, right? Yes. Um, so which would be accurate to the script. <laughs> so yeah, the. Uh, it doesn't, nothing about the title tells me mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be sci-fi. And if there's sort of Lovecraftian elements, you know, that's uh, that's in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You could call it Shakespeare and Cthulhu in the park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, if, good you, times. if you don't know what the King in Yellow is, and that title really, really means almost nothing. 
Yeah, it really, it really won't for most people. I mean, even me knowing about the Yellow King mm-hmm. in True Detective, it's a pretty, a pretty deep pull. Most people aren't even going to remember that from True Detective. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and this is like, you know, I mean, I love like my genre uh, as a writer, as just a creative, has always been horror and dark thrillers. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you know, but there, there's some other formulation of that that could be really, that could be really good. Okay. Um, but I'm happy to kick that one around with you too. But it sounds super interesting. I would 100% read that screenplay. Well, thank you very much for saying that. Um, okay, now um, I got to be honest. This last one um, is not actually one that I've written. It is just yeah. a logline that I came up for you to compare to the other ones. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, and this one I will give you the title last. Mm-hmm. After gambling away money that wasn't his, a debt to pay quickly becomes a fight for survival after learning that the mysterious bookie he owes money to is actually a great white shark looking to get back what's his. It's called Loan Shark. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. 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 And there's an actual shark in it? The shark wants his money back, yes. (laughs) You know, there's probably a great version of that that is sort of uh, steeped in magical realism, mm-hmm. you know, where it's almost like you're playing, you're playing with um, sort of uh, what is the word? It's not fairy tales. What do they call the the old tales like Hansel and Gretel, like you know, was sort tales? of written kind of. folk tales. Exactly. Yeah. There's sort of like a, a folk tale version of this where someone who's broke hears that if he goes and does X, Y, Z dives to the bottom of whatever, there's a shark that will, you know, make him rich or will give him what he needs. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you find out that, uh, it's just a loan. <laughs> <laughs> He's coming back for it. <laughs> yeah. There is some, there's something fun in there, but putting shark in the, in the title, man, man, sci-fi has kind of ruined that. It's <laughs> such a specific thing, you know, mm-hmm. it's such a specific thing. You know, it's, it's interesting though. It's interesting. My brain always tries to think of the the good ver the version I want to see of whatever I'm I'm reading, mm-hmm. you know. And then sometimes a great script, you know, you'll read it and it'll surprise you and just be different and better than what you're expecting. Well, thank you so much for um taking uh, time out of your day to uh, talk to me. This has been a really great conversation. Yeah, I've enjoyed it for sure. Yeah, so uh, thank you so much. Where can uh, where can people find you and your company and your work? Yeah, so I am on Instagram at it's Micah Haley, and I'm on Twitter at Micah Haley. I I got super lucky whenever that was 2008 when Twitter was just starting <laughs> up, and I got my my exact name. So great, uh, and I'm also on TikTok at it's Micah Haley. So feel free to hit me up on any of those. And uh, yeah, you can find more about Intercut Capital at uh, intercutcapital.com, or of course on IMDb, which is great. I don't know if you're familiar with IMDb. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I am. which has been owned by Amazon since 1998. Did you know that? I did not know that actually. Yeah, man, Jeff, that Jeff Bezos, he's going places. <laughs> I, th- I think he's going to end up doing okay. <laughs> from- <laughs> <laughs> he's going to be good. Yeah. Well, thanks. I've really appreciated this. Yeah, thank you. Thank you again so much. You can find more of this show at Hollywood Greenhorn on Instagram and at Greenhorn Pod on Twitter. If you would like to be a guest or know someone who would like to be a guest, send an email to HollywoodGreenhornShow at gmail.com. You can find more information on all of the scripts that we talked about at my website at RyanFitzgerald.org. Thank you. <laughs>